In this episode, I had a conversation with Joe Morgan about Olympic marketing, operational excellence in freelancing, brand marketing, and much more. Joe is a 16-year growth and brand marketing consultant who has worked with orgs like Great Britain's Olympic team, Levi's, and so many more. Let's start right away with the time that you spent working with Team Great Britain. Um, talk through that project. First off, what the scope was, get, set us up a little bit, and then walk through what you actually did, because this is fascinating. Never talked to somebody that's actually worked on something like this before. Yeah, I mean, it was one of those opportunities, rare opportunities you get to kind of blend your passions with your career. Um, and not only that, kind of build something from the ground level. Um, so for context, Team GB is the British version of Team USA. Uh, I'm sure most of your audience will be familiar with Team USA. Uh, and they're responsible for um, the team and the athletes that go to the Olympic Games, both winter and summer across all sports. Uh, the interesting challenge there is these athletes are only hours for three to five weeks every four years, right? It's not like the 49ers uh, or the Warriors where those athletes are kind of contracted to those teams. Um, we only have those athletes for a very short period of time, every two years for the winters and the next two years for the summer uh, games. It's also a not-for-profit organization in the sense that no government money, so it's fully funded by sponsors to fund um, the athletes going to the game. So my challenge really was how can we make that theme and that brand uh, relevant all year round um, in the years between the Olympics, right? During the Olympics, of course, everyone watches, everyone's a fan of the sports, of the athletes, so we get massive media attention. So from a sponsorship standpoint, huge value in that three weeks. The other two years, not so much. Um, so, and by building that brand value, we can then get more sponsorship, which then in turn helps with performance, right? There's more budget for coaches and medical facilities and equipment. And it's important um, to recognize that because, you know, this is 10 plus years ago when I was there. Uh, and one of the challenges that I had uh, 10 years ago was social media was still relatively new. The idea of content and influencers was still relatively new. So a challenge for me with leadership was, oh, what's the point of growing Instagram followers or website visits? Like, it doesn't matter. Um, but having that idea of the impact it has on the broader brand value and how it impacts sponsorship and then how it impacts performance, like having that cadence or that recognizing the impact that you have on the broader organizational um, strategy is important. Um, so my role really was how can I organically grow our owns and captive audience in order to provide kind of maximum value for our sponsors. Um, so rather than hoping or relying for media outlets like Sky Sports, which is a bit like ESPN, to give us coverage, how can we build our own media brand and our own content hub and our own audience following? Um, and that's really what it came down to. So giving sports fans access to athletes that they simply can't um, through these kind of more traditional means. So, you know, watching their road to the Olympics, their training, going to world championships, uh, and not the facts or the opinions that you would typically see in the media, but their own perspective, their own story, their own personality. Um, and then matching that with uh, digital first partnerships. Um, so we were one of the first organizations to live stream sport on Facebook. Uh, we were one of the first people to do Google Hangouts when that was a thing many years ago. Uh, we did a hangout with the Spice Girls. 
uh, out of all people, which is fun. Um, and then through that approach, we kind of grew our owned audiences from 50,000 to 3.2 million uh, in just six months. So by the, having the audience, we could then provide uh, value to our sponsors. And that was really the crux of my, of my time there. And I was there for five years. So London 2012 was the first games and then Rio 2016 was my last games. Were there, did you have like specific KPIs that were measured for this? I know that when, with branding, that can get a little bit murky. So I'm curious, like what you were measured against or how you thought of success. Yeah. I mean, I was in a, people would say this is a nice position. I had zero KPIs, but it's almost a worse position to be in because you're not really with zero KPIs. You're not sure where to put your efforts from uh, in terms of um, supporting leadership or supporting organization or success. Um, ultimately the goal was how can we drive as much value to our sponsors as possible? Because more sponsorship revenue meant more money to support the athletes. So for me, it was, how can we be more, um, self-sustainable from a media coverage and an audience perspective to be able to build brand love, brand affinity, brand support all year round to then drive revenue. Um, so for me, it was all about driving our own audiences. So email lists, website visitors, social following, uh, and a captive audience, which we can then monetize. That was really what I, um, kind of set as my own goal within the organization to support wider objectives. So after this, what was the transition after you phase out of team GB? What was kind of the next thing on, on your resume, I guess, and how has that led to where you are now? Obviously working at Team GB, I was based in London. Uh, I was in London for seven plus years, uh, but always had a dream and a desire to kind of move and live um, in the US. Uh, and really that was because my um, desire was to progress within the sport marketing space. And I saw US as the creme de la creme when it came to that space, you know, working with either the big leagues like the NFL or working at the team level. Um, so that was kind of my goal. And I got chatting, uh, to uh, the founder of AKQA, uh, Jars, um, who was from London originally, and that's where the agency was founded, but they have offices in many US cities. And he presented the opportunity for me to move to sunny San Francisco, uh, where I moved back in 2016 uh, and was able to work on brands like Nike, uh, Caterpillar, Visa, IBM, and Levi's as well. Yeah. So before we die, I want to dive into some of that experience there, but You've done a lot of different things. So more CMO type roles, growth marketing, branding. How do you balance the difference between those different things all at once? Yeah, I mean, and that's an interesting question because that's kind of where I'm at now in my career. I'm, you know, um, 16 years later, I'm freelancing as a consultant and I kind of flip between those roles, um, whether it's fractional CMO roles. Uh, brand strategy roles or kind of more traditional kind of growth marketing roles. Um, more often than not, a lot of my roles um, start with growth marketing. Well, that's typically what the ask is um, from clients. Um, you know, how can I grow my business without huge budgets or huge teams is typically the ask, uh, which is obviously much more transactional based and data driven, uh, but more importantly, automation and scale we could talk about how AI is helping automation later. Um, but we end up, you know, a lot of the clients start with the mindset of needing growth marketing, but we end up taking a step back 
and looking at their brand strategy. Um, there are obviously quick wins uh, and low hanging fruit, um, which c- can be implemented kind of straight off the bat uh, from a growth marketing perspective. Um, but many kind of assume that just kind of throwing money at, at an advertising strategy will so- solve their woes. Um, and frankly, I kind of see brand strategy as one of the most important pillars of marketing. Um, it really defines your purpose as a brand, um, what your values are and how you present yourself to various audiences. Um, and I say it's the most important part of, of marketing, uh, as it influences kind of every touch point, every piece of content, every ad that you put into the world. Um, there's only so much optimization you could do from a non-creative side of ads, whether it's budgets or audiences. Um, so, you know, even once the brand strategy is better defined, we often move, um, onto digital touch points, right? So it, it's interesting. A lot of my clients almost start with the end of like, I just want to throw money into the market and, and grow. We often take two steps back and think about brand strategy first. Um, what is your purpose as an organization? What is your product market fit? How do you go to market with that? Then we focus on, uh, digital platforms. Um, so again, rather than spending money on traffic and eyeballs that are not converting, how can we improve the overall experience and the narrative and the journey that you take audiences on? So how is that brand strategy realized from a digital experience standpoint? And then we move in into growth marketing. So um, that's kind of what I'm seeing at the moment from a brand strategy and a growth standpoint. And then with the fractional CMO roles, um, there's typically kind of two types of engagement. Uh, you know, new companies, net new companies who have yet to really develop a strategy or build a team and need help in doing so. Um, or companies that kind of have a junior marketing team who are, you know, very um, smart from a, a channel expertise standpoint, but they're really missing that senior leadership or that visionary piece. And that's where I kind of come in um, with that kind of diverse experience to kind of provide that senior leadership piece. So for one of these particular projects, you worked with Levi's and you don't have to dive into every single thing you ever did there, but I am curious, some of the things in that experience that kind of shaped your approach to marketing or helped you see things in a different way. Yeah. So obviously Levi's historic brand defines the denim category, timeless, authentic, but then not immune to changes in consumer behavior, brand preferences, or even just changes in the market in terms of, you know, retail to e-com, uh, fast fashion, et cetera. Um, we've been working with Levi's a number of years, uh, mostly on the social media and content and influencer side of things. Uh, but Levi's had a fresh challenge, uh, which I was brought in to lead. And that was how can a brand like Levi's uh, define and foster loyalty uh, long-term with the different audience base. Um, now, for a bit of context, Levi's, like many other retailers, like the Nikes and the Ralph Lauren's of the world, historically relied on product distribution through retailers like a Macy's or Foot Locker. It was all about volume, right? Little consideration for the customer experience. Um, you know, once those brands' products had left their control, it was all about sales, right? Over the years, that's changed. Um, margins being a primary factor around wanting to go more direct to consumer route, but also just the importance of owning that brand relationship, that brand story, controlling narrative, and of course, fostering loyalty. Um, so started with research, 
secret shoppers, focus groups, pesto analysis, quant surveys to really get a sense around behaviors and opinions and needs um, from consumers around Levi's and their kind of general shopping experience. Um, and essentially where we landed with Levi's is kind of how to foster loyalty um, came down to kind of two areas of benefits. One was more functional. So how can they deliver a frictionless shopping experience, void of pain points to the consumer? Um, and for the most part, these are benefits that everyone has grown accustomed to, thanks to Amazon Prime, um, free shipping, easy returns, responsive customer service, um, which strangely, a lot of organizations still fail to deliver. Um, don't quote me on this, but I think the number one reason for abandoned cuts is not getting free shipping. Um, which is an incredible mindset, even if you're buying a $3,000 laptop and shipping is $10, people get tripped up on that, <laughs> that $10 free shipping, right? It's amazing how people just assume that, uh, or expected free shipping and, and free returns. Um, the next layer on top of that is, uh, repairs and alterations for all members, trading old for new member benefits, that type of stuff. Um, the reward for Levi's was mostly data. Uh, so people signing in to check out rather than checking out as a guest, massive increase in first party data, which helps with business growth, but also things like reduction in abandoned carts, but most importantly, people coming direct versus going to a retailer. So that's purely functional bread and butter stuff, um, table stakes. The next was emotional benefits. Um, and how can I feel loved by a brand, um, as if they're talking or focusing on me or making it personal to me. So that was things like access to um, exclusive events with musicians, uh, personalized product offerings, um, star recommendations, early access to sales, member-only products, meetups with collabs like Justin Timberlake, that type of stuff. Um, so one of the key differentiations when developing their loyal strategy was um, not thinking about how can they make the customer remain loyal to Levi's. Right? It's not asking the, cus the customer, right, you must remain loyal to us because we're the best. It's how can Levi's remain loyal to their customers and show them love and in return make them kind of super fans of the brand. And that was key learning point for me was just to um, really shift the narrative around loyalty, less so the credit card and airport um, airline kind of model of like, right, the more you spend with us, the more we'll love you. Levi's like, we'll love you regardless. And these are the reasons why we hope that you continue coming back. I love it. No, it's really interesting to dive into the branding side. I feel like it's so ominous at times where there's not as much to this and breaking it down is, is very interesting. I do want to shift gears a little bit here on the freelance side and just pick your brain a little bit about what's happening in the freelance landscape, I guess, right now. Why do you think so many really good, talented marketers are opting to do freelance above full-time work right now? Yeah, great question. Um... I think there's a number of things at play. Uh, obviously, COVID introduced a more um, uh, a more welcoming idea of remote work and the ability to work remote, work from home, um, which makes freelance work a lot easier. Um, first and foremost, um, with that, I think a lot of people shifted their priorities in terms of work-life balance, 
um, you know, coming from Europe where work-life balance is much more of a priority than it is in the US, just in terms of amount of holiday and your working week and what you do after work. So I think that's part of it as well. People wanting to have a bit more of a work-life balance. Um, so that's from the talent side. Um, but then from the brand side, there's also been a shift just in terms of, you know, COVID was hard for them in terms of budget cuts. Marketing can often be one of the first things that sees cuts. Um, and also realizing that you may not need to have a full-time team working on everything all at once, that you can, uh, obviously the agency model has been around a long time, uh, but agencies come at a premium cost. Um, so I think the freelance route and platforms like Marketer Hire have unlocked this opportunity for marketers to, you know, marketing leaders within companies, I should say, has unlocked this opportunity for them to be uh, way more efficient with their uh, budgets for talent. Um, so not having to have, you know, 20 full-time staff and, and five agencies, they can create freelance teams that kind of get stood up for certain projects uh, or work part-time based on the need. So th those are the things from my perspective, it's a mixture of um, the talent themselves wanting to have a bit more work-life balance and work on different projects and work for themselves because of the nature of, uh, of what we've seen over the last two years, but then also brands being a little bit more frugal and smart with their talent budget, um, and finding alternatives to the traditional agency model and going the freelance route, like, like markets are higher. Um, I'll give you an example. You know, I'm working with a client at the moment. They've been putting off building a website for years because they think they need a budget of $250,000. The reality is you can hire a freelance team and do it for forty dollars or $50,000. That opportunity is now there. So it's shifting people's perspectives in terms of how they can spend their money and the amount of value they can get out of people rather than the more traditional routes. Yeah. On the freelance side, it's interesting to think there there's kind of two sides that you have to be able to do the work, but you also have to be able to sell yourself. And I do think a lot of time gets spent on that second part because as a freelancer, you need to sell yourself. You need to get new clients. That's the lifeblood of your livelihood. But you have to be able to do the work. And so focusing in on that point, double-clicking there a little bit, for your clients, how do you ensure that you are you know, operationally excellent for them, that you're set up to succeed with whatever client you bring on? Yeah, so it's funny you mentioned operational excellence. That's kind of one of the pillars of what I try and deliver to my clients. Uh, but before we kind of touch on that, uh, as a freelancer, of course, you mentioned the ability to have to sell yourself in order to get, um, to get work. That's obviously the biggest downside or the biggest challenge for most freelancers is keeping a book of business, but also having some form of consistency because sometimes you can have five clients, sometimes you can have two clients. So it's quite hard to manage your time. So that's obviously one of the downsides of the freelance world. But Marcus Hire is an incredible resource in that it kind of helps you manage that for you. Um, I'm terrible at selling myself. I'm also lazy when it comes to selling myself. So Marcus Hire is a godsend. Uh, but in terms of working with clients, firstly, it's um, just honesty of your capabilities and what you're going to deliver. But, you know, that's my first golden rule with all clients, whether they're asking for something which is unattainable or asking for something which falls outside of my skill set. I've got to have that open and honest conversation first and foremost. More often than not, if there's opportunities um, 
that fall outside of my skill set, I bring in a team around me um, to support. Um, I'd rather be honest, be like, look, this is not my skill set. Let's bring someone in who, who can do it. Um, but going back to the operational excellence piece, kind of where I bring most of my value to my clients. Um, and it all starts with kind of efficiency and, and automation. Um, and what I mean by that is how can my clients maintain or incrementally increase performance whilst reducing their level of effort or costs by say 20 or 30%. Um, there's nothing sexy about this process, but if you're a type A, you might enjoy it more than others. Um, but from my experience, it does have the opportunity, uh, to unlock, uh, the most amount of growth and capacity to work on the fun, exciting projects that you've always wanted to, but never had the budget or the time to do so. Cause you're just constantly in the status quo. Um, and this is why for me and for my clients, it's important because, um, Almost all my clients are understaffed, overstretched, and feeling the pinch of budget cuts, uh, especially in the current market. Um, and for context, I work mostly with startups and sporting organizations and nonprofits where, um, for them, this is, um, more of an issue than others. Um, and unfortunately they've kind of implemented very little change to their marketing operations over the years. Um, simply because they don't have the time or the capacity to do so. Uh, so they're constantly treading water just so they can stick with the, like I said before, status quo, they're just spinning plates. Um, I'll give you an example. So I took on a role in a full-time capacity uh, as a senior director. The team and the performance was pretty good. It was steady, you know, mild year on year growth, but a, a few things were apparent. Um, the growth they'd seen was kind of more by chance than design. Um, their core strategy in terms of channels, approach, content, uh, even the optimization they were doing to campaigns had seen little change over the years. Uh, the team was burnt out and frustrated. They'd be doing the same old tactics year after year without huge success, and they weren't able to innovate. Um, and they had a terrible attribution model, meaning they were in the dark in terms of what was really effective and what was um, driving revenue, which again is very common. Uh, a lot of organizations don't really have much of an attribution model in place. Um, so first develop a more robust measurement framework and attribution model. So we can see which channels and campaigns and content driving the most revenue, uh, straight off the bat, any marketing spend is now way more efficient. Then it was all about building a team, uh, processes and roadmaps to help with growth. Uh, so for example, we spent uh, 60% of our budget on agencies. And we shifted that to be 20%, increased the team from six to 12 people, had freelancers on hand to help us when we needed them, rather than hiring full-time staff, which were not utilized all the time, which goes back to our previous comment. Um, and in the years prior, just from a performance standpoint, in the years prior to me joining, um, the marketing team had an ROI at 0.6. Just those two changes, attribution model, focusing on channels which were performing and getting rid of ones that weren't and shifting budget away from agencies and more developing your own talent and putting more money into marketing spend. We shifted from a 0.6 to 3.4 in just a year. Um, same budget, larger team, less burnout. Um, and by doing that, I kind of paved the way for brand partnerships and celebrity deals and PR opportunities and influencer campaigns, all the things that people get excited to do on a daily, daily basis. Um, but then, you know, we had the capacity to do so. So 
that's really um, where I come in with my clients is how to deliver that operational excellence to unlock the opportunity for growth. Last question here, and then we'll, we'll call it a day and you'll have to come back. Yep. But um, if you had to think through whether this could be something that you're currently using yourself or that just kind of comes up a lot in your client work, what's the most valuable MarTech tool in your stack right now? Oh, good question. Uh, AI is the hot topic right now, thanks to everything going on. Um, that's really where I'm seeing the most value. And it's a lot of it is just automation. Um, automating routine tasks, right? So whether that's optimizing campaigns for better performance. Um, so most of what campaign managers do on a daily basis is check performance and adjust spend levels or audience targeting based on metrics. There's now platforms out there um, that can do that for you. Um, and platforms out there which are very tailored to different uh, tech stacks. So whether you're an Amazon seller, whether you're a Shopify seller, uh, whether you're all kind of more traditional brands, there's platforms out there that kind of support all of those needs. Um, creative production. So um, create images based on just an idea or Lumen5 that kind of turns text-based content into videos or copy AI that can, in a very scary way, produce incredibly high quality content. Um, research, um, you know, the ability to use AI to build out research tables. Like, I don't know, let's think of an example, like um, build a table showing me the average CPC for e-com brands on Facebook over the last five years, compare it to TikTok, YouTube, and Twitter. Boom, now you've got some benchmarks to work with and rather than going through 17 websites, it can do it for you. Um, and then the last is probably customer experience opportunities. Um, chatbots, customer service, personalization, recommendations. That stuff's not new. It's been around a while, but it's becoming a lot more sophisticated. So that's really where I'm seeing the most value is, again, going back to my clients who have small budgets, small teams. You know, maybe they can't hire a full-time campaign manager or full-time creative. So the ability to automate those processes. You know, there's a tool called Socio, which can, if you're an e-com brand, can automate all of your um, catalog ads in Facebook. So if you've got a thousand products with a click of a button, all your ads are created. Or there's platforms like AdScale or Quartile, which will automate your bids on an hourly basis based on audiences, based on um, time of day for CPC. So um, long story short, those are the type of platforms, the AI platforms that help automate is where I'm seeing the most value with my clients.